You are now listening to the May 29th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, a sermon, and prayers after God's own heart. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with Story of Kings. Together, we have covered many kings. Some were godly and some were not. Some were outright evil. We are now winding down in our Story of Kings series, and only four kings are left. The stories surrounding these four kings are rather short, but they mark a poignant end to a dynasty. We will cover the story of the last four kings of Judah today. Their stories are found in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 31, to chapter 25, verse 30, and in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Their names are Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakin, and Zedekiah. Among them, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah were all sons of Josiah, the 16th king of Judah, whereas Jehoiakim was the first son of Jehoiakim, Josiah's second son. Their stories are also recorded in detail in the book of Jeremiah. Known as the weeping prophet, Jeremiah served God during their times and witnessed the demise of Judah. If any listeners are interested in more details about these kings, they should turn to Jeremiah. We will refer to Jeremiah today as the stories of these four kings unfold. After Josiah died in battle, his fourth son, Jehoiahaz, became the seventh king of Judah. His name is recorded as Shalom in Jeremiah 22. Jehoahaz is Shalom's royal designation. Jehoahaz became king when he was 23 years old, but he was dethroned only after three months by Necho, king of Egypt. From that point, he lived as a captive in Egypt until his death. The Bible does not record much about those three months under Jehoahaz's reign, except that he was a king who did evil in the sight of God as his ancestors had done. Just as he put Jehoahaz to exile in Egypt, Necho, king of Egypt, imposed on Judah a penalty of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. Necho then made Eliakim, older brother of Jehoahaz, and Josiah's second son, the next king of Judah. He changed Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim as a symbolic sign that he was the actual ruler over Judah. Jehoiakim became king when he was 25 years old. His first act, unfortunately, was to impose a heavy tax on his people. That was purportedly to meet Necho's demand for silver and gold. However, in actuality, Jehoiakim had vast amounts of wealth, enough to build a palace for himself. How he handled Necho's demand shows how greedy and heartless he was. He left his money aside and levied a heavy tax on his people. Ultimately, the Bible assesses Jehoiakim as a king who did evil in the sight of the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 22 verses 13 to 19 record in detail Jehoiakim's evil acts and God's word of judgment spoken through Jeremiah. Jehoiakim exploited his people to build his own new palace. He forced them to work for him, but withheld their wages. Verse 17 tells us that his eyes and heart were intent only on his own dishonest gain. He was prone to shedding innocent blood and practicing oppression and extortion. Also, Jeremiah chapter 26 records how he threatened true prophets of God and even killed them. Jeremiah chapter 36 records that despite hearing the word of God, Jehoiakim 
did not repent and did not turn back to God, and instead he threw the scroll that contained the word of God in brazing fire and burned it. In Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 19, God finally condemned Jehoiakim by declaring how he would be buried in a donkey's burial, dragged off and thrown out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. What does it mean to be buried in a donkey's burial? Donkeys were an ignoble animal in Israel, and when they died, their carcass would be thrown out anywhere. So Jehoiakim, having a donkey's burial, meant that he would meet a tragic death, and his dead body would be discarded anywhere, just as they did to a dead donkey. During the time of Jehoiakim, Babylon and Egypt were in a constant state of war. Jehoiakim had to ally with one of them to survive, and he chose Egypt. But Egypt came out on the losing side, and as a consequence, Babylon came after Jehoiakim and killed him. The scripture in 2 Kings chapter 24, verses 2-4, to attributes the cause of Jehoiakim's death and the fall of Judah to their disobedience to God's word. God had told Jehoiakim and Judah through the prophet Jeremiah that Judah would fall if they did not serve Babylon. Jehoiakim did not listen to God's word and chose Egypt. After Jehoiakim died, his son Jehoiakim became the 19th king of Judah. He was 18 years old. The Bible tells us that he also did evil in the sight of the Lord as his father did. Jehoiakim surrendered to Babylon three months after he was enthroned and became a captive to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away all the treasures in the house of the Lord and the treasures in the palace. Also, he destroyed all the gold vessels in the house of the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar hauled away Jehoiakim as a captive and also took his mother, wives, and the officials. The leading men of the land and all the men of valor, craftsmen, and blacksmiths as captives as well. The Bible records that only the poorest people of the land remained. In Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 24 to 30, God warned Jehoiakim through Jeremiah. But just as the kings before him, Jehoiakim did not listen to God's word through Jeremiah and did evil choosing the path of destruction. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took Jehoiakim as captive, he put Jehoiakim's uncle, Mattaniah, Josiah's third son, as the next king of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar changed Mattaniah's name to Zedekiah, just as Necho, king of Egypt, changed Eliakim to Jehoiakim. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, changed Mattaniah's name to Zedekiah. Again, that was to show that he was the ruler over Judah. Zedekiah became king when he was 21 years old and reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. The Bible tells us that he did evil in the sight of the Lord according as Jehoiakim had done. For that, the Bible tells us that God became furious, so much so that he cast away Jerusalem and Judah from his presence. The prophet Jeremiah continually told Judah to serve Babylon and that God would judge Judah. But Zedekiah did not heed God's word and betrayed the king of Babylon. Eventually, on the tenth day of the tenth month, in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with his entire army and struck Jerusalem. Zedekiah was under siege until the eleventh year. One and a half years passed, and the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food. Then the city was broken into, and all the soldiers fled by night on the ninth day of the fourth month. Zedekiah the king also fled. But the Babylonian soldiers chased after him and captured him and brought him to the king of Babylon. The king of Babylon killed Zedekiah's sons in his presence, killed all the officials of Judah at Riblah, gouged out his eyes, and locked him up in prison. In addition, 
Nebuchadnezzar burned down the house of the Lord in the palace. He burned all the houses, including the houses of high officials, and tore down all four walls of Jerusalem. He brought all the valuable articles from the house of God to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar completely destroyed Jerusalem so that Jerusalem could never conspire against Babylon ever again, excluding only those that lacked skills and would not be of use, he hauled away all the people of Judah to Babylon. Jeremiah chapter 52 verse 30 records that the total number of people taken as captives in three separate times were 4,600. God sent prophets unceasingly since the time of Jeroboam to the time of Zedekiah, so Judah would turn back to God. Alas, they rejected God's gracious provisions. They did not repent, and they did not follow God's word. Eventually, God's wrath descended on the southern kingdom of Judah. It fell just as the northern kingdom of Israel did. Today's story tells how the southern kingdom of Judah met its end. A sad ending indeed. However, God's love continues and His mercy prevails to save His people, the same people that had utterly betrayed Him. This concludes today's episode. We will continue on with the story of Kings for a few more weeks. Have a blessed week. Lover of my soul on the mountain high
Thy goodness faileth never Good shepherd may I sing your praise Within your house forever Within your house forever Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is search and rescue. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Look at James chapter 5, verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That first part of verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, James has talked about a, is talking about a real possibility here. He's talking about brethren. He's talking about Christians, brothers and sisters. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you. So he's talking about believers. It's possible for believers to wander from the truth. He's not talking, it's not a salvation thing here that James is talking about. That really hasn't been the topic of anything in his letter. He's talking more about how a believer ought to live. How a believer, the standard that we have as Christians, that's what James is always dealing with. True faith, real truth. This is how it looks. This is how the things it likes, the things it loves, the things it doesn't want to do. So now he's saying, okay, now there are some believers who wander from the truth. The author of Psalm 119, 176 says, I have wandered away like a lost sheep. Come and find me. Believers sometimes wander away. The word wander could be translated just as well, stray, to stray. And I think to wander from the truth is a good picture because most believers don't deliberately make a decision to walk away from God. In Hebrews 2.1, the author of Hebrews says, so we must listen very carefully to the truth that we have received so we may not drift away from it. You can drift away from truth. And the idea is of a ship that was not tied up at the dock like it should be, and it's gotten away and it's just drifting outside the harbor. That's so easy for a believer to experience if they don't stay close to the truth. We must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard, or we may drift away from it. And it seems like the history of the Bible is God's people drifting away, God calling them back, God's people drifting away, God calling them back. That's the history of Israel. And that can be the history, uh, sadly, for a lot of us. It's way too easy to begin to wander away from the truth. As I've said, wandering, strain is a slow process. It's a slow process, usually. I thought of a couple things that can lead to that process that I want us to be warned about. And the first is, I think you'll be inclined to wander if you're not nurturing your spiritual life. These are are very (laughs) timely words because it would be very easy for you to not nurture your spiritual life the way You were because you have so much free time, so much undisciplined time that what you were once doing with and for the Lord, you're not doing anymore. You get out of the habit. You love God. You love the Lord. But you look at yourself. Am I drifting or am I tied just as securely as I always was? The problem can happen, particularly if you're an extended period of absence from church. We need each other, and we have been motivated by one another and can protect one another, and then something happens that has never happened in the history of the world, and 
it's not the same. And our worlds are kind of upside down in, in a dozen different ways. And our spiritual life, you've got to maintain it. You have got to you know, flex. You've got to modify whatever it takes for you to nurture your spiritual life. And if it's possible for you to begin to come back to fellowship, then you should be back in fellowship and not just comfortable away from God's people. Now, wait, if you're not, and there's any reason you shouldn't, then of course I'm not, I'm, it's not a guilt trip, but I am speaking to those who are just comfortable now. And you're not walking closely with God, not because you're not here, but you know what I'm talking about. I'm not in the word like I should be. I've just, I'm drifting away, looking at things I didn't used to do, doing things I didn't used to do. Part of being the church is the one another aspect, right? All by myself, I can't love one another. I can't serve one another. I can't encourage one another, etc. I need somebody else to fulfill those commands from the Lord. Being in fellowship with other followers of Jesus builds you up, and it also builds them up. Have you ever thought, it's not the first thing that popped in my mind, but hey, I better be at fellowship because I'm going to encourage somebody else by being there. Usually it's like, well, what am I going to get out of? I need to get there because I need to hear from the Lord. Well, maybe your being here is exactly um, what somebody else needs because you're sitting there by them. You're praying for them. They just see you. Hebrews 10 says, let's think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. So this is my suggestion. My encouragement is that if you can't be at church physically, then you have got to guard your time when you are watching a service or you're participating online. I think also you can be inclined to wander away if you follow your own sinful desires. That might just be a no-brainer, but James alluded to that in chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1 here and look at verses 14 and 15. James 1, verse 14 and 15, he says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So I always think of the fish with the fishing lure. Promises, promises, right? Sin looks so delicious. It's so enticing. But once you bite, you're hooked. And so he says, each person's tempted when he's lured by his own desire. There's a flesh in us, that desire to go after sin. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. When you follow the desires of your own heart, their desires are not going to lead you to the Lord. The desires of your own heart are going to want to drag you away from Jesus. Amen? That's the way we naturally incline. Another thing I'm thinking about is you could be inclined to wander away when you become discouraged or depressed. Some of you might have a more of a natural inclination toward discouragement. You're more on the Eeyore side of the scale, you know what I'm saying? Uh, some of you have, you're dealing with chemical problems. And so you, you struggle with like a, a chronic depression, clinical depression. You've got to understand that when you are tempted to just pull inside, roll up in a little ball and be protected, you are so, so um, making yourself vulnerable to the enemy pulling you away. What? Going counterintuitively when you're discouraged or depressed, don't pull in completely. Reach out as much as you can. And the word to us, and we all know people maybe discouraged this moment, or we know that they uh, have been in the past, they tend toward that way. We have to be the ones to reach out to them. Don't wait for them to call you and you say, how are you doing? You're going to need to contact them. And you know that person I'm talking about, you need to call them, you need to get in touch with them. And you need to say, hey, how are you doing? What can I do? 
can we get together? And they won't be excited about it. You're not pushing. What you're doing is you're doing what James basically says is you're pulling them up. You're lifting them up. You may be searching and rescuing somebody right then. So when you're discouraged, what do you do? I think you need to push into the Lord, push in the Lord, get a better perspective. You might tell yourself, well, this, 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 and this is happening right now. But the reality is God is in control. The reality is I'm going to get through this. The reality is God's always provided for me. So you always go back to the reality is I'm feeling terrible, but the reality is I'm in the care of God, whatever it might be. Always bring yourself. So if you're discouraged and then trust the promises of God, it's hard to stay discouraged when you're in the word of God, when you're listening to praise and worship music, it's hard to stay in that bummed out place. Strain from the truth. Somebody said, this is what, what it looks like. And I want you to take kind of a self-check as you hear this. Strain from the truth results in loss of joy, loss of peace, loss of a sense of the presence of God, doubts and concern for the things of Christ. It will also result in a loss of fellowship with Christ. Maybe the Bible and prayer means less and less to you. Faithfulness in attending church and worship will lose its meaning and fullness. Someone said you won't get as much out of the worship services, but instead you'll see, I've seen the problem is yours. You want to blame other people, the music, the pastor, whatever. Sometimes from that drifting mode, you become hard and critical of other people. Or you begin to be super sensitive and the least little things upset you or hurt your feelings. And just, where am I at? Am I drifting or am I strong? People need to be rescued because it's seldom that people in need of rescue find their own way back by themselves. The people who are lost and the Team has to go find them. The problem is they're lost. They're not going to be able to get back by themselves. We have to go because they're not going to be able to find it their way back without us. The enemy confuses their sense of direction. You get away from Jesus and all of a sudden, where am I at? How did I get here? I don't understand which way I'm going. There's some places, even in this valley, I get to the east, east valley, it's like another state to me. And I'm, if it wasn't for the sun, I wouldn't know what direction I'm in. You know, well, the sun rises. So I know where the sun is going. That must be west. I, and it's counterintuitive. I'm thinking, no, we're going north. Leslie says, no, honey, we're going east. I can be further from the truth. I'm, I've lost my sense of direction. When you walk away from the Lord, that thing happens. Or they're ashamed of something that they've done. And so they've got to have somebody there to assure them of God's forgiveness when they confess their sin and they turn from their sin. You got to be assured or else they'll just stay away because they're ashamed for the rest of their lives. We got to go after them because they need to be taught how to not let this happen again, you know, to bring them back, teach them the ways of God. Jesus is into Search and rescue. Look at one of his big search and rescue efforts in Luke chapter 15. Hold your place here in James, but go to Luke chapter 15. Look at verse 4. Here's one of Jesus' search and rescue efforts. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave? Uh, let me just say this. How does he know that he has a hundred sheep? He what? Counts them. And we're told that the ancient shepherds had names for every single sheep. So he's counting them into the evening as they're coming back into the fold. 
What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Our shepherd is a seeking shepherd. He's relentless in wanting to seek those that have been lost. And when he has found it, verse 5, he picks it up and he shakes it and he yells at it and says, how could you have walked away from me? No, what does it say? (laughs) And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, what? Rejoicing. (laughs) He lays it on his shoulder. You understand what this means? It means that sheep Wandering away, it's probably taking that sheep. It's full of stickery. It's, it's exhausted. It hasn't had any water, nothing to eat. It's weak. And so the shepherd doesn't drag it, you know, with a leash. The shepherd picks that up and he puts it around his shoulders. He holds on to that sheep and he carries that sheep all the way. I just love the picture, don't you? carries it all the way home. And when he comes home, verse 6 says, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying, rejoice with me. I have found my sheep that was lost. In verse 7, New Living Translation says, in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Jesus is into search and rescue, right? Oh, it's only one sheep. Come on, we got 99. Come on, we've got plenty to take care of. Oh, no. You see, every single sheep is valuable to Jesus. You are valuable to Jesus. You, he will go to whatever lengths it takes to look for you. You're not just, oh, whatever to him. You matter to him immensely. You hear that? You matter to him immensely. And he knows when you're not near him. He knows that. And it says when he founds it, he is ecstatic. He rejoices. He calls his friends and keep it to himself. He calls his friends and his neighbors and he says, rejoice with me. I found that one that was lost. I just love that. And, um, Jesus in verse says, there will be more joy in heaven. There's a party in heaven when that happens. James tells us all to go and do the same thing, to do the Jesus thing, to search and rescue a lost sheep. I often ask, though, when I see believers who have just veered way off course, some that I've worked with and served with for years. Um, been in ministry a long time. Some brothers and sisters, that we served together. We, and then I see where they're at now. And I, I, I say, how did that happen? You ever have that? How did that happen? Some people will say, well, they were never saved in the first place. I said, no, I know that person is saved. I saw the fruit of their life. I worked with them. I saw that. I know they're saved. How does it happen that they're now so far out in left field? Well, I think we've talked about the things that can pull us away. You can get pulled away by not watching your spiritual life, by going after your own lusts. By falling into discouragement and despair. Maybe those are some of the reasons. Back in James 5, verse 19, James, James says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back or turns him from his error, you save a soul from death. It's telling us that we're responsible to do this. It's not just a pastor. I'm not the one responsible only to to go after people who have wandered away or strayed from the truth. James is writing to every Christian. He says, my brothers and sisters, if anyone from among you, you go out and you help. Listen, I love the way Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase uh, paraphrases this. 
Just, you can just listen. My dear friends, if you know people who have wandered off from God's truth, don't write them off. Go after them. Get them back. And you will have rescued precious lives from destruction and prevented an epidemic of wandering away from God. Don't write them off. Our tendency is to just say, I guess they're a crash and burn. Move on. No, don't write them off. Maybe some of you were, and you're not because somebody sought you. And then he says, by doing this, you prevent an epidemic of, what do you say, wandering away from God. One goes, one goes, one goes, one goes, and nobody goes after the first one. What's to say there isn't going to be a mass exodus of the sheep? You got to keep things together. That's what he's saying. In Galatians chapter 6, Let's go there too. I just want you to see these passages with your own eyes. Galatians, if you go back to the left, um, I don't know. If you get to Matthew, you've gone way too far. Um, Galatians chapter 6. We'll look at the first two verses. Brothers or brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The New Living Translation translates it very well. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens, and in this way, obey the law of Christ. Your burden is my burden. Mine is yours. And when somebody falls, we who are spiritual, they fall into a temptation, transgression, We who are spiritual are supposed to go to them and to help them up, but with a spirit of gentleness and humility. And whenever, whenever, whenever somebody tells me something they struggle with or something they've done, I don't get judgmental. I just, I look at my own life and I think, you know, what would it take in terms of trouble or things I've gone through for me to be right there myself. Verse 20 back in James is ends by saying, uh, let him know that whoever brings a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. I think it's talking about God's judgment in this life. Some sin leads to death. Certainly see that in the early church. The apostle Paul says, wrote to the Corinthians and he says, because Some of you are messing around at the Lord's Supper, not taking it um, sincerely and reverently. Some of you are sick. And some of you have even died. Wow, that's discipline in this life, right? That's judgment in this life. Uh, James says, hey, you will save a soul from death. You will save a soul from death if you can bring them back from their wandering. And he says, we'll cover a multitude of sins. I love the way his book ends. Cover a multitude of sins. How are we covering a multitude of sins when we're involved in search and rescue? Well, we keep the sins from public view. We're not newscasters. We're rescuers. Amen. And if somebody has fallen into sin and you have the privilege to be there to help them lift them up and get them back on the road, you keep that stuff to yourself. Just like I wouldn't want, you wouldn't want everybody to know what you've fallen into or you've struggled with. And so we cover it, not like 
some crime covering anything like that, but we don't advertise someone's sin. We're not newscasters. We don't reveal the sin. It's not what I'm called to do. The aim is to not wreck, but to restore, not to expose, but to say, you're safe with me. And this is totally what God is into. God will cover your sins. It's easy to hear this and to still kind of like let it roll right off of you and you, you are sitting in sin and shame. You've just got to know the truth. Listen to what God says in Isaiah 44, 22. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. Isaiah 44, 22. I've blotted out your transgressions like a cloud. You know, the image there is you wake up in the morning, there's the dark clouds and you wonder, oh man, where's that going to go? And by noon, they're gone. What happened to them? They were evaporated. And God says, I will evaporate your sins like clouds are evaporated. In Psalm 85, verse 2, God says, you forgave the guilt of your people. Yes, you covered all their sins. Psalm 32, 1 says, how blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. God covers our sins. God forgives our sins, a multitude of sins. In Isaiah 43, 25, God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God's saying, I'll never think of them again. You've heard me say, I don't know how that's possible. I know my theology. I know that God is all-knowing, that he knows all the future, all the past, all the present. And he says, I'm never going to think about what you've done again. Your sins I will remember no more. That's only a divine thing. Because I walk around remembering some of my sins, and it gnaws at me, and it creeps up, you know, pops in your mind. At the worst time, God says, and you say, God, help me with this. And God says, what? Not to put words in God's mouth. What are you talking about? I've forgotten that. That's gone. It's in the past. Maybe that's what you need to say as you're struggling with guilt and shame in your own life. And that sin or sins keep, you know, the guilt and the enemy is, is, is kind of shouting and puts it in front of you at the worst time. You just need to say maybe it, that's in the past. It's in the past. It's under the blood. It's covered by Jesus. It's blotted out. God's not thinking of it. He's forgotten it. It's not on record. I mean, there's all the truth. I may feel this way, but the the reality is everything I've just said. It's in the past. It's in the past. I offended. I remember offending uh, someone and... uh, Feeling really bad about it. I, I'm sure I thought about it a lot more than they ever thought about it. And again, I think I, I went to them and I, I said, I'm so sorry. And, I said, and what, what, I, what they said to me was what I just told you. It's in the past. It's in the past. Sometimes the offenses linger in our minds. In God's heart, they're gone. They're in the past. So what are you hearing? I hope you're hearing there is hope for restoration for every believer who wanders away from the Lord. You hearing that? There's hope. And we are the hope. God doesn't say, well, just wait, wait for them. I'll come and get them sometime. God says, no, you go. I'm going to use you. I'm not going to just sovereignly move by myself to bring them back. I want you to be my instrument to do that. So before you move forward, before you move forward, I want you to think, who is there that I haven't seen? Who is there I haven't seen for a while? Any in your Calvary family that you haven't seen for a while? Well, probably a lot of people. Is there any one person in your heart that you haven't seen for a while? Then... Go after that person, not because they're strained, perhaps, but just go after them, call them, find out, hey, are you doing okay? 
Because we haven't seen a lot of us in a long time, right? Then before you go after somebody who is straying, before you move forward, pray. First pray. Be praying for that person. God puts them, they become, they get on your heart. You pray for them. Pray for an opportunity. Pray for the timing. Pray for the words. We're not coming in as, as law enforcement with subpoenas. <laughs> We're going with grace, right? We're saying, hey, Jesus loves you, forgives you. Come on, you've lost your way. Let me help you. And you know, because the Bible says this is a spiritual thing to do, this will work. This will work. Examine your own heart before you go. Of course, you want to think, hey, where am I? Am I walking with the Lord and I think examining your heart is to make sure we, we have that humble attitude, that loving heart. Maybe heart broken. Make sure your motive is love. We're not called to be lawyers. We're called to be rescuers. We're called to be like our Jesus, to search, to be tenacious, not quit until we get that one lost sheep. That's the call. James ends with saying, and you will cover a multitude of sins. I want us to pray to that end, okay? Lord, we have been called to follow our Savior, to be Search and rescuers, we're on that team. There are people that we have not seen. We may have friends that have drifted away. They've wandered away and their lives look so different from when we worshiped together and we fellowshiped together and prayed together. They strayed from the truth, but right now we're asking that you would open doors for us to bring them back. Lord, begin to prep their hearts right now. That person that we're thinking of, that person you're thinking of right now, prep their hearts right now, Lord. Draw them to yourself and give us the tools we need through your word to bring them safely back, we ask in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Praise God for his word.
Like the voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, please call us at 602 866-8999. That's 602-866-8999. The following program is called Prayers After God's Own Heart. Hello, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministry listeners. This is Terry with prayers after God's own heart. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. These verses give encouragement to many of us when we are in difficult and trying times. If we are to rely on the words of Jesus, what do you think is the reason we must ask, seek, and knock? Are we expecting God to answer when we ask, seek, and knock? However, theologians say there is something more important than just merely receiving, finding, and opening in what Jesus is telling us. The three imperatives, ask, seek, and knock, are in the present tense. In other words, it is not asking, seeking, and knocking just once, but means to ask, seek, and knock continually and repeatedly. So, prayer is continual, fervent, and requires perseverance. I once read an explanation from a theologian who said that the reason Jesus used the present tense is so God can have a lasting spiritual fellowship with us and teach us patience through our continual fellowship with Him. Therefore, the reason God allows us to go through trials and difficulties are to cause us to go through a process of confession, adoration, thanksgiving, and fellowship with Him. I couldn't agree more when I heard that explanation. When we pray to God and wait for God to answer, we experience His presence much deeper and delve ourselves into fellowship with Him we get to learn more and more about Him. I'm sure you feel the same way and must have experienced and felt God much deeper through the process of praying and God answering. 
The reason we are happy when we receive God's answer to our prayers is not that He granted what we want, but the assurance that God is always there waiting and has fellowship with us. If this were true, I mean, if the purpose of a prayer is not about receiving, finding, and opening, but getting to know the Lord more through the process, the way we must pray must change drastically. Most of the time, our prayers are like, please grant me more, please let me accomplish more, and reflects our tendency of wanting to get more from God. But are there any of you who prayed the opposite? For example, please do not grant me more than what you want me to have. It will be difficult to pray such prayers. It is our nature to want more and get as much as possible. But if the purpose of prayer is in the fellowship with God and not in receiving as we just shared, I believe such prayer is possible. There is one person in the Bible who prayed such a prayer. It is the supplication of Agur, the son of Jackie. Verse 1 introduces Proverbs chapter 30 as the words of Agur. But there isn't much information on who Agur, the son of Jackie, was. The opinion of most theologians is that Agur was a scholar who was studying the wisdom during the time of Solomon. Though it is not known who Agur was, his prayer is recorded in scripture. Today, I like to share with you three special verses, Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9. Two things I asked of you, do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. These verses are known to be the only prayer in all of chapter 30, and Agar asks two things from God. Also, he asked God not to refuse what he was asking of him. We have a lot of things we want to ask God for. But Agur only asked for two things. And even what he asked for were way different from what we usually ask for. Let's take a look. The first thing Agur asked for was to keep deception and lies far from him. He asked God to protect and help him so he does not deceive himself and become a liar. A prayer like this in which we ask God to make us so that we would not deceive and lie to ourselves may seem and sound easy to pray. It may sound like it could be a prayer that we could pray daily. God, please make me a person who does not lie. But if you think about it, praying such a prayer is not an easy one. Let me give you an example. Let's pretend that you are determined to do something unrighteous that God does not approve of. In order to accomplish that, you know you have to lie. I'm sure we all had such an experience. In that very situation, in other words, when you already have decided to lie that day, do you think it is easy to pray this prayer to God? Please keep deception and lies far from me. No, it is not. When we have decided to do something that God would not approve of, we momentarily hinder our fellowship with God. That is our true nature. Whether we repent afterwards or happen to move farther away from God, we first do what we want to do. That is why being able to pray like Agur to keep deception and lies far from me shows that we are determined to stay away from such lies and deceptions in our hearts. That is why Agur's prayer is one after God's own heart because it shows his determination in keeping himself away from lies and deceptions. The second thing Agur asked for was to give him neither poverty nor riches and only feed him with the food that he needs. Isn't this prayer also very different from our supplications? Most of us pray to God to make us become rich. But Agur explained the reason for this prayer in verse 9. He says the reason is that so he does not become a person full of pride by being full and think less of God, and so he does not profane the name of God by becoming too poor and hungry, which may cause him to steal. Don't you agree that Agur's prayer is indeed a prayer after God's own heart? He was afraid to become proud and think he does not need God by having too much and was afraid to profane the name of God by his wrongdoings. 
Agur's prayer shows his fear of being separated from God and his desire for God's name to be glorified. That is why his prayer is certainly a prayer after God's heart, and also because it is a prayer which exalts the Lord and not himself. Quite often, we see some people forsaking the life of faith after becoming too rich and too proud. People say the blessing of being rich comes from God, but if that causes people to leave God, can we really call that a blessing from God? Wouldn't it actually be the devil's deception? Agar knew that. That is why he prayed neither to make him poor nor rich. His prayer was not about asking God to provide him with enough food so he did not have to worry about eating. His prayer was about allowing him to remember in the everyday life that God was always with him. That was the purpose of his prayer. The purpose of our prayer must be likewise so that we can have a deeper fellowship with God through the process of God answering our prayer. And that will be the prayer after God's own heart. This concludes today's episode of Prayers After God's Own Heart.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.